0: Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today are Nathan Thompson, who's an Associate Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. Today's podcast was recorded live at our session entitled, Keeping the Bottom Line Black at the Indiana Farm Machinery and Technology Expo held in Westfield, Indiana on December 15th. And we're going to talk about a few things that are maybe relevant to the corn and soybean outlook, but that's really not going to be the focus of our discussion. We're going to spend more time talking today about marketing strategies, not only the ones that you can use in 2022, but also from a longer-term perspective. And then Dr. Langemeyer is going to talk quite a bit about um, some of his computations with respect to break-even analysis and what maybe some of those implications are with respect to acreage decisions and then actually talk a little bit about farmland leasing because I know that's going to be a hot topic, <clears throat> excuse me, not only this winter, but also as we look ahead uh, to the 2023 crop. So I'm going to start off just talking a little bit about some of the things with respect to what's influencing the corn and soybean outlook. And so if we could maybe kick off that first slide, um, key factors for both corn and soybeans are corn ex- or exports. And if you look at the corn export Projection from USDA, they're currently projecting exports down about 250 million bushels compared to last year at about 2.5 billion bushels. If you look at the next slide, take a look at what's happened so far this year. Um, Current marketing year commitments and sales. So this includes shipments as well as future commitments. And as you look at the numbers, we're down a little bit compared to last year at this time. And each one of those comparisons is to the same period. Uh, in the prior years, so comparing to 2020, 19, 18, 17, and 16. And then as you look at the China side, our exports, combination of uh, shipments as well as future sales, sales that have already been committed but not yet shipped, we're actually a little bit ahead. So the export picture on corn not too bad, and I'm going to show you the export picture on soybeans a little later, and it's a little different picture. So, so far, exports on the corn side look pretty good. If you look at the next big component of demand, that's ethanol. And USDA is anticipating a modest recovery in ethanol usage as the economy kind of recovers. We get back to driving more. Um, If you look at what's taken place so far, though, uh, in that next slide, the ethanol usage numbers actually suggest USDA's forecast might be a little too pessimistic. So just a little bit of interpretation on this slide. These are the week-by-week comparisons of ethanol production compared not to last year, not to 2020, but rather to the pre-pandemic era, 2019. So I'm comparing 2021 to 2019. And, of course, those red bars indicate we were running well below 2019 levels. Look at the right-hand side, and you can see that we've had some pretty good increases with respect to ethanol production compared to 2019, compared to the pre-pandemic era. The last few weeks, we've backed off a little bit, but we're still averaging above the 2019 era. So as you think about it and think about maybe whether or not you want to be optimistic or pessimistic about where corn's going, ethanol is a plus. And I think one of the previous speakers pointed that out as well. Looking ahead, when USDA makes their next round of revisions in January, it would not be surprising to see them increase the ethanol production numbers, the number of bushels going into ethanol. That would pull down the corn carryover a little bit, and that's going to be one of the key issues. If you look at the next slide, which is the uh, estimated margins at an ethanol plant, this is based on some data from Iowa State University. Those margins have been near record high. Uh, if you look at that $1. fifty-four per gallon, that was a few weeks ago. But even the most recent data, this slide is updated through last Friday, it's still over a dollar a gallon. So that suggests to me that ethanol production is going to continue to be very strong this winter. The only thing that would hold that back would be a pullback in terms of the economy, right? If we start pulling back, quit driving. Uh, The economy doesn't continue to open up as it has been. And obviously, there are some concerns that could happen. But certainly, the data so far is looking very good on the ethanol side and would suggest maybe more ethanol usage uh, of corn than what USDA is projecting and maybe leading to a little tighter supply situation, a little tighter supply demand balance than what USDA has been projecting. So you look at that next one, yeah, corn ending stocks. Uh, USDA's current projection for the current marketing year, 21, about 10.1% carryover from the 21 marketing year into the 22 marketing year. Uh, That's up from last year. If you think about a thumb rule here, I like to think about that carryover estimate being above or below 10%. And the years when that carryover gets below 10%, you can get some pretty good volatility. So if we tighten up the carryover a little bit relative to where we are now, that pulls us down below that 10% value and maybe sets us up for some modest re- improvement, even relative to current prices. And I know corn prices have rallied in recent weeks. Um, I'm not going to really talk too much about this, but then the related factor, obviously, with respect to corn, is what happens in South America. and. You're going to be inundated every day from now until probably the end of March with respect to weather forecast for South America. Uh, all I'm going to say there is it. It's going to be worthwhile to pay attention because that's going to be a big component of what drives the change and carryover, not only for the world but obviously also for the U.S. as well. Um, so I'm going to go from there. Oh yeah, let's look at the the world situation. So the world situation. These are the world estimates from USDA. Um, Their last report and last two reports had ending stocks from a world basis at 26%. That's well below where it was back in uh, 16 when we were at 33%. So we are tighter on a worldwide basis. And I actually think this chart probably understates a little bit how tight world supplies are. If you look at the major exporters, which is really what counts, that situation is tighter than what the world uh, numbers would suggest. And one of the challenges with the corn um, ending stocks estimates on a worldwide basis, is about 60% of that is in one country, China. And a big question mark in terms of what the quality of that corn is, and truthfully, even whether or not the inventory estimates are accurate. So when you look at the the major exporters, that corn situation on a worldwide basis starts to look a little tighter than what, what this chart suggests, and again, suggests from a worldwide basis... We need to see trendline production numbers coming out of not only North America but also South America. Um, and any kind of a hiccup there with respect to production, probably going to reduce the carryover estimate here in the u s and be positive for corn prices. So let's turn our attention to soybeans a little bit. So obviously, a huge interest in soybean exports, USDA forecasting. Uh, a decline of about 260 million bushels this year, relative to last year. So they're already cognizant of, of the fact that soybean exports are likely to be weaker in this marketing year than last year. If you look at the next slide, which is the uh, current marketing year situation, uh, not only for the world situation in terms of all destinations, but also what's taking place with respect to China, different picture than what I showed you for corn, right? Soybean exports, combination of shipments and commitments down, I think, 27% compared to last year. Um, China alone is running about 30% below last year. So the big wild card there is obviously exports in total and in turn what's going to take place with China. Um, And I don't think any of us really have any special insight with respect to what China is going to do. I think that continues to be a source of tremendous uncertainty. So that's gonna be the wild card along with weather conditions in South America with respect to the expectations for production. So again, um, if you wanna get optimistic about soybeans, the two things I think you have to get optimistic about would be exports. And in turn, if you're gonna get optimistic about exports, that's probably gonna be tied back to maybe some pullback of production in South America. So again, it's gonna be watching the weather pretty carefully in South America and also watching what's going on with China. I would not be surprised on the January report if USDA chooses to pull back their export number for the world, uh, world exports from the U.S. to the rest of the world, based on what's happened so far. If you look at what's taken place so far relative to their estimate, they're not too far off, but it can, if it continues with the weak trend that we've established so far, the concern is the big window for U.S. exports is from harvest time in the fall here in the US till about the end of January, maybe sometime in February. So if we're gonna see some catch up on soybean exports, it needs to take place pretty quickly and that's gonna be a challenge. So I think um, I'm a little bit more concerned, uh, more friendly with respect to the corn side than I am the soybean side. Um, If you look at the ending stocks numbers, uh, it looks a little better than the corn side. It's 7.8% versus on corn, we were at 10%. The bad part about that is, does anybody remember what that 7.8% was projected to be last summer? Yeah, at one point, we had it down below 4%, right? So the, the trend has been going in the op- opposite direction or the wrong direction in terms of increasing that carryover uh, relative to uh, what we were expecting back in, say, June and July, especially. Um, I heard previous one of the previous speakers talk about this a little bit and mention the fact that they were concerned about – the carryover estimate, which is currently sitting at about 340 million bushels, how much of an increase USDA might show in January. And I'm, I'm kind of in that same camp, worried about whether or not we might see an increase in that carryover number on the January report. Um, if you look at the world soybean stocks estimate, that's um, a little bit like corn, although there is a distinction here. You don't have the one country analogy concern with respect to a large inventory sitting in, in China. Um, Again, though, as you look at those soybean carryover, 27% or so, down from that 33% when we had that big carryover, largely as a result of the pullback on world trade as we got engaged in the, in the trade war with China. Um, on a worldwide basis, one of the interesting things about soybeans has been the strength in soybean oil, which has really carried soybeans for quite some time, and then if you look at what's taken place recently, it's been the strength in soybean meal. And I know the previous speakers were talking a little bit about the soybean meal situation uh, with respect to increasing demand for soybean meal because of a shortfall in lysine on a worldwide basis. That's likely to continue. So we're likely to continue to get some positive news on that front, and I look for meal to be relatively strong here going forward. So that could be an interesting situation that develops over time. So that kind of wraps things up from kind of the outlook side. If you think about from the corn side, um, a lot of it is going to hinge on what takes place with respect to South American production. So we're going to have to watch that very carefully, particularly the second crop corn coming out of Brazil. A lot of uncertainty um, with respect to acreage and the 22 crop that came up in the last session as well. If you're gonna get friendly on the corn side, probably the big friendly news is is mostly on the ethanol side with respect to very strong ethanol usage, possibly pulling down those corn carryover numbers. On the soybean side, trade is a concern. The exports have been weak. Uh, If you're really gonna get optimistic about soybeans, you really wanna see a stronger export value. Uh, The good news is the crush is looking good, both from an oil and a a meal standpoint. Um, So of the two, Maybe be a little friendlier towards corn than soybeans. Um, and then obviously we're gonna have that big debate, which we'll talk about a little later with respect to what's going on with acreage. So I wanna to turn to to Dr. Thompson here and let him talk a little bit about some of the research that he's done with respect to marketing strategies. And Nathan, I'll let you take it away.
1: Yeah, so uh, talk a little bit about some marketing things. So again, you just heard a, a really good short run outlook uh, and given kind of the theme of, of our kind of session here on keeping the bottom line black. I wanted to think about some things that were maybe not so much related to kind of short-term marketing decisions, but more strategies that can be uh, implemented over maybe a longer period of time. So the three things that I really want to spend my time talking about, and again, I'm going to address each of these pretty briefly, is first, right, the role of basis, thinking about uh, where basis fits into your marketing program. I also want to talk a little bit about storage, right? Storage is a really common marketing strategy for most folks. But the question is, right? do you have a, a merchandising plan for the grain that you have in storage? And there's a number of reasons why that's important as it relates to um, the, the risks that we might be taking in terms of storing grain too long, but then also some different strategies that we can utilize Uh, for those bushels that we have in storage. And then I'll wrap up a little bit talking about uh, carrying charges, right? How do those fall into that marketing program and and even some some pre-harvest marketing and and, uh, how do we develop strategies about what we know about both carrying charges uh, and those futures, uh, seasonal patterns and futures. So let's start with a basis, right? So uh, obviously when we market grain, we're selling uh, for a cash price that cash price has two components, right? The futures component, which we can all see on our phone at the board in Chicago, uh, and then the basis component, which is the localized component uh, of that cash price. And so we have a lot of information on futures, a lot of tools of how we can manage uh, futures price risk, uh, but we often overlook basis, right? So uh, in order to implement basis information into that marketing program, you need to be able to build some expectation of what you think basis is gonna be uh, in order to kind of make those marketing decisions. And so as we were kind of going around and teaching some marketing stuff, a big kind of hole that we saw was that folks kind of understood the role of basis, but maybe didn't have the information that they needed Uh, to implement that into the decisions that they were making. And so that prompted us to put together uh, the Purdue Center for Commercial Ags Crop Basis Tool, which is available on the Center for Commercial Ags uh, website, which the link is on the slide there. And so that's a free tool that uh, houses both historical basis data uh, across crop reporting districts in Indiana, as well as Illinois, Ohio, and Michigan. Uh, And in addition to the historical data, going back to the early 2000s, there's also current basis information and they're updated every week. So you can look at uh, what current basis levels are relative to those uh, historical years. And again, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at the data. You can average across multiple years. You can look at individual years. Uh, so if that's not a resource that you've tapped into, I would encourage you to take a look at that uh, because there's a lot of valuable information in there as it relates to developing kind of an expectation of what you think basis is gonna be and what those trends and patterns might be uh, in your local market area. So on the next slide, I just have a few screenshots from the tool itself to give you an idea of what you would find if you went to the tool. So here we're looking at corn basis uh, in central Indiana. Uh, the, the blue line here is the historical three year average. So I've selected that to kind of pull that out of the tool. Again, you could look at whatever information you wanted in terms of individual years or a longer average of, of Um, more years than what I have here. But the three-year average is kind of what we default to there. And then the black line would be the current year's uh, basis level. So starting at the beginning of the crop marketing year in September, September, every week I'm updating what current basis levels would be in that particular region. And so you can see, we started off the year with with strong basis kind of coming out of last summer. That quickly kind of reverted to the the mean there. And we've really been running right along that three-year historical average, which again, that average is our kind of best expectation of what we would expect basis to be anyway. And so we're really right on track there uh, in terms of basis levels uh, where we're at this year. If we look at soybeans, this may be a little bit different story. Again, we started off strong coming out of last summer. Into this crop at marketing year, again, we kind of uh, reverted back to that average. We were maybe running a little further behind uh, that here we're looking at a two- year average on soybeans. That's kind of the, the the thumb rule that I use for soybeans based on some research that we did. So we're running a little bit further behind that two- year average, but you can see in the last several weeks, since, say, the beginning of November, we've seen soybean basis strengthening uh, a lot more than what we've seen on the corn side. And again, that's just catching us back up to where uh, that historical two- year average is. So again, be aware of basis, pay attention to basis. We have lots of resources on the center's website as it relates to how to implement basis information into a marketing plan. And then utilize the tool, right? So if you're already aware of the importance of basis, but you're struggling to kind of figure out what your expectations are, the tool is a good place to start. Again, it's not basis information for a particular location. So you wouldn't necessarily uh, sell grain based on the information of the tool. It's a regional average. But it is a good kind of uh, a place to start in terms of figuring out what Trends and basis are and what the patterns in your local region might be, uh, so you can kind of implement that.
0: And, and Nathan, I think it's important to point out that blue line, which is the average, that's really the best forecast that we've got. So for corn, your research suggested a three year average was optimal. That's right. And soybeans, a two year average maybe in some cases a three-year average, but typically a two-year average. So relatively short averages give you your best forecast year in and year out based on that uh, over 30 years of data that you were looking at, right?
1: Yeah, so we were looking at uh, 30 years of data and – um it, basically, you know, more recent information tends to be more valuable on the soybean side of things. The corn side, three to five years really wasn't all that different. Three years was the best, and so that's kind of what we default to. But yeah, in terms of kind of forecasting and looking forward, that's the thumb rules that we use uh, when we're using the tool. So if we move forward, the next thing that I want to talk about a little bit is uh, some storage strategy. So again, storage is a common uh, tool that, that a lot of producers use when marketing grain. Um, and it, One thing I want to point out before I get into the information in the chart is we did some research looking at, okay what were the net returns to storage throughout the crop marketing year? Right. And so what we found was that and again, this wasn't novel to us, but it was important to kind of validate uh, what had been done maybe um, uh, in previous uh, time periods was that, you know, there is a, a increasing kind of net returns to storage from October through uh, say the early summer months, April and May. After that point, we see those net returns to storage start to decline. Um, and so it's important uh, for folks that are storing grain to have an idea what they want to do in terms of merchandising that grain and not just holding on to it with the hope that we're going to get to some unknown level, right? So understanding the risk that you're facing in the time period that you're looking at in terms of making sales is really important. So the the main thing I want you to think about there is what is your strategy for getting rid of it and being aware that the longer you're holding that grain, especially into those summer months, you're taking on a lot of risk as it relates to the returns uh, to those bushels. With that said, uh, I also wanna talk a little bit about some different strategies as it relates to um, earning storage returns. And so what I have on, on the slide here is I've picked a month, May, right? So if we're gonna store grain from October, let's just say as harvest through May, let's look at two different strategies and what the returns for those strategies might be. So the first strategy is an on-hedge strategy. So we're just putting bushels in the bin. We're not taking any position on either the basis or the future side of things. Uh, and we're gonna see what happens. And so that's the dark gray bars that you see on the slide. As you can see, there's a number of years where we have relatively high returns to that strategy. And again, these are net returns. So these include storage costs and opportunity cost on those bushels. So this would be your gross return minus your storage cost, And there are years where I call them home run years, right? We can do really good. And and last year was one of those years. We had a big rally in futures between harvest and May. And because of that, we had some really large returns to this speculative strategy. There's no ceiling on those returns. As much as futures can rally, uh, we can earn returns to that strategy. The other strategy is a storage hedge strategy. And this is important as it relates to some risk. So again, you can look at the slide and see that the gray bars for the on-hedge strategy, while maybe we leave ourselves a lot of upside, we also are taking on some downside risk, right? Because futures can move in the other direction. We're not protected on those futures prices or moves. Uh, And so we can can see big losses uh, for that strategy as well. The gold bars on the other hand is hedge strategy. That would be a strategy, we put bushels in the bin in October, we're gonna sell futures. Okay, so we're protecting ourselves on the future side, we've eliminated the futures price risk, and now we're only speculating on basis. And research tells us that basis is much more predictable than futures. Uh, And again, I just told you, you have the crop basis tool to build an expectation uh, of what those basis levels should be going forward. That's relatively predictable. And so you can see the gold bars show us uh, a steady return with a lot less downside, but the upside is capped, right? Because we can't uh, realize those large rallies in futures um we're kind of capped on that upside just the increase in basis between october uh and uh excuse me may in this scenario so then if you look at the averages there so for the on hedge strategy this is 30 years of data we've got an average return of 33 cents again that's above storage cost uh for the storage hedge scenario right those returns to may are 17 cents a bushel so you're taking a little bit of a discount there because you take those peaks out what's interesting though is if you take out those four years where i have red arrows those home run years um That average for the on-hedge strategy drops from $0.33 a bushel down to $0.10 a bushel. Okay, So again, that's a strategy where you may want to have that as part of a marketing portfolio. Right, Having some on-hedged corn in storage is not a terrible strategy, but it might want to be a smaller portion of that portfolio than than some other strategies.
0: So Michael, when you looked at this slide yesterday when we were getting ready for this webinar, you had an interesting take on the chart.
2: Could you share that with us? Yes, I think Nathan mentioned it. There's a lot of downside risk with an unhedged strategy. All those gray look at all those gray bars that are below zero. And so and so, certainly using that as your sole strategy would not be a good idea. Yeah, so you've really
0: introduced a lot more risk into your marketing yes. plan by doing that, right? That's right.
1: So let's look at the same thing for soybeans here. Uh, and again, we get a little bit different picture. Uh, and so this is the same setup. We're just looking at storage from October Through the following May, I've got an on-hedge strategy. We're not taking any position on both futures or basis, just speculating on those cash prices increasing. Uh, And then the the storage hedge strategy is, again, we're going to sell futures in October and then make our cash sale uh, in in May. So what you can see, the gray bars here, the on-hedge strategy, we see large positive returns a lot more frequently on the soybean side than we do on the corn side. Um, So you can see, I didn't count them up, but there's probably almost... Ten or so years in the last 30 years, where we've had returns, net returns. Again, this includes costs uh, over a dollar a bushel, which are, are pretty phenomenal. You can look at 21 being uh, this last year. You know, futures rallied uh, from $10 a bushel. Excuse me, prices rallied from $10 a bushel at harvest to over $15 in May. So that $5, uh, 478 there were, were huge returns to that strategy. The, the hedge strategy for soybeans doesn't look quite as good as what it did for soybeans. Again, there's there's a number of reasons why that is, which I don't have time to get into. But you can see that, again, it's a little more of a steady strategy, but maybe has some downside risk there on years where we don't get basis um, um, appreciating as steadily as it does uh, for corn. And so on average, that hedge storage hedge strategy for soybeans in this particular scenario gave us a five cent per bushel return net return. The on hedge strategy, though, you know, much higher at 75 cents per bushel. So really what you're looking at here is is the frequency of those turns returns and the average of those returns. And so, you know, corn versus soybeans, corn has some big home run years, uh, but but uh, when we throw those out, that hedge strategy looks pretty good. Soybeans, on the other hand, much more frequently, we would want to see uh, positive returns associated with an on-hedge on hedge strategy. Maybe that's something we want to have as part of the portfolio. The,
0: the other thing I noticed looking at those two charts, Nathan, is when you look at the hedge strategy for corn, there's only one year where the hedge strategy produced a negative return. Right. That's not true in soybeans. That's right. So clearly a distinction there in terms of what you want to do with respect to storage hedging. Looks much more favorable for corn than it does for soybeans. Unhedged storage looks much more favorable for soybeans over versus corn when you're thinking about it from a long-term standpoint. In other words, thinking about a marketing strategy or approach you want to take, kind of year after year after year. Right. That's right.
1: So then I want to wrap up with uh, kind of a final discussion that uh, maybe. Uh, builds on some of what we've talked about so far, and and that is thinking about carrying charges and uh, the seasonality of futures markets. So what we're looking at here is uh, the difference, so carrying charges is just the difference in in futures contracts, right? So here we're looking at uh, the difference in December futures and the following July futures. So the spread between those two contracts, and we're looking at it from the first week of January prior to harvest. So this is a pre-harvest period, up through the expiration of that new crop December uh, corn futures contract. So this is kind of everything happening up to the the expiration of, let's just say, for example, this year, the December 21 contract. So we're starting in January 21, looking at that spread uh, through December of 21. And again, this is a 30 year average. So I've taken how that spread has changed throughout the year uh, for 30 years and looked at what the trend is. And so what you can see is typically at the beginning of the year, uh, there's much less of a premium between those two contracts. So the December and the following July futures are, are much closer to each other at the beginning of the year. And as we get closer and closer to the expiration of that December contract, that spread between those two contracts starts to widen. And that's a pretty um, uh, consistent pattern that we see in the data. And so it raises a question of, well, okay, when, we, when should we be doing our hedging from a futures perspective? Um, The problem with that is, okay, well, that's nice to know that, Nathan, that's a good pattern. Does that mean that I should do all of my hedging later in the year to lock in, you know, um, higher carrying charges? So if you advance just another slide, we have to throw that up against what we know about the, the seasonality and futures markets. That is how futures prices change throughout the year so over that same time period so again starting january prior to harvest through uh expiration of that december contract i'm looking at a futures price index okay so this is for december new crop corn futures and i'm looking at it uh, on an index basis just to kind of normalize price levels from year to year given that the data goes back quite a bit. So the index just says, you know, uh, in January, the first week of January, the index is 100. Anything above 100 means that prices tend to increase that time of year. Anything below 100 mean that prices tend to decrease relative to the first week of January uh, that time of year. So what you can see is we typically see uh, futures prices have strength uh, in those kind of early summer months, May, June, July. So that peak at 104, that would be Uh, Futures prices in in June are 4% higher on average than what they are the first week of January. And then they tend to revert to their kind of seasonal lows at and around harvest. That 95 would mean that it's 5% below um, the, the futures price the first week of January. And so, again, we have some basic structure here. The problem is implementing a strategy around this, we have kind of an inverse relationship. When futures are seasonally high, we don't have the widest carry in the market. Okay. But when the carry is widest at around harvest, futures tend to be low. So how can we develop a strategy that allows us to take advantage of both of those things? And unfortunately, the, the markets allow us to do that. And if you've heard of anybody talk about hedging and rolling, so that would be the strategy that allow us to uh, hedge. So in the summer, when futures prices tend to be seasonally high, we would uh, sell new crop December corn futures. That wouldn't lock in the spread between uh, December and whatever um, uh, more deferred contract month you were looking at here. I'm just looking at July. Uh, you wouldn't lock in that spread yet, right? You would just be locking in the futures price when it's seasonally high. You would carry that position through. Uh, again, based on what we're seeing here, those spreads tend to be widest, uh, really in that month or so before the contract expires. That At that point, right, you would buy back the December contract and immediately sell the July contract, which would lock in that spread on the screen there, that 22 cents, And then you would have both uh, achieved a favorable seasonal uh, average of the futures price, as well as the widest spread uh, based on the seasonal pattern. And so that would be kind of the strategy that you would want to use that would allow you to take advantage of what we know about kind of patterns in in, in both the, the carry in the futures market, as well as the seasonality in the futures prices. You know, Nathan, when I
0: look at that chart, I'm reminded a couple of years ago at our Top Farmer Conference, we had a speaker from Iowa State, Chad Hart, and he talked about timing your corn sales. And one of the comments he made was year in and year out, selling corn either just before or just after Father's Day is a pretty good strategy. And that matches up perfectly with your analysis, right? That's about where that 104 is. That's right around Father's Day. Doesn't happen every single year, but over the course of your career, that's a pretty good time frame to be thinking about selling some new crop
1: corn, right? That's right. So then if we compare this kind of hedge and roll strategy, where again, we're taking advantage of the information that I'm showing you on this chart, we can compare that with the previous two strategies, which was unhedged, right? So we're just speculating on on storage returns, and then the basic storage hedge, what I called the basic storage hedge, where we're hedging once we have the crop in the bin. So on the next slide, we can look at the average returns. Again, these haven't changed for the first two strategies, the $0.33 and the $0.17 a bushel. That's exactly what I showed you a few slides ago. When we look at that hedge and roll strategy and how, if we just implemented that every year over the last 30 years, on average, that would generate a net return. So again, a return above storage costs of 36 cents a bushel. So a little bit better than what we saw from that on-hedge strategy. But again, remember that on-hedge strategy had four years or so that were really driving that average. And when we took those out, those home run years, um, that that average dropped quite a bit. And so it's it's a steadier strategy, less risky, and it generates a higher return. The other thing people want to think about sometimes is, OK, well, you're showing me these averages and then you're showing me the distributions and there's a lot of risk that underlies those. And that, you know, that makes me nervous. I don't I don't trust averages anymore. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to see the distribution. So you could think about it in terms of frequency. So I just want to know how often is this hedge and roll strategy better than the other two that you showed me? So if you just look in any individual year, which of the three strategies was best, right? So over the last 30 years, that hedge and roll strategy was the best strategy in that year, 17 out of 30 years, seven out of the last 10, and then four out of the last five. So you can see from a, a probabilistic standpoint, that's really the strategy that gives us uh, the most consistency in terms of producing uh, a positive as well as uh, most, most frequently producing positive returns so then quickly i'll just show the same sort of thing for soybeans um i won't dwell on it because it's the same information it's the timing is slightly different but again this is just the carry uh in the futures market same time frame we're looking at uh, january prior to harvest up through the end of october when the november soybeans the november new crop soybean contract would go off the board and again you can see that that spread tends to be narrower earlier in the year and then as we approach expiration uh, tends to get a little wider, which would mean we would want to lock in that spread later in the year, closer to expiration. But on the next slide, we have the the seasonality in futures. And again, we see this inverse relationship when when um, new crop, November soybeans tend to reach their peaks in terms of um, seasonality, highest prices seasonally,, uh, that's not when when those spreads are widest. When the spreads are widest, that's when we see the lowest uh, soybean prices from a futures perspective. So again, implementing this hedge and roll strategy uh, would allow us to take advantage of both of those two things um, at the same time. So looking at those returns, again, uh, the unhedged and basic storage hedge, 75 cents per bushel and the 5 cent per bushel are the same as what we saw a few slides ago. You can see this hedge and roll strategy maybe is not quite as uh, uh, high of an expected return that 38 cents per bushel is is still only about half of the 75 cent on the on hedge strategy which again produces very consistent and very high returns but again has downside risk and that's what we have to pay attention to Again, looking at it from a frequency perspective, that hedge and roll strategy, as opposed to corn on soybeans, is only the best strategy 12 of the last 30 years, three of the last 10, and two of the last five. So less frequently is that the best route. And so really what we've been selling, so you take all this, right? You're like, Nathan, you've put a lot of information in front of me. Just tell me what I should do, right? The, the, really the takeaway that I have when I uh, go around and present this information is pushing a, a marketing portfolio strategy right? So not only should you be spreading out sales over time, that's something that a lot of people do. It's obvious. You don't make all your sales on one day uh, because prices can go up or down, but spreading that risk across different strategies. Because again, you can see from this, there is no silver bullet. Uh, So using multiple strategies and allocating what proportion of the crop you want to devote to each of those strategies is really a personal decision, depends on your risk preferences, your risk tolerance, Uh, but each of them have pros and cons. And so allocating, yeah, you know that that on hedge soybeans, those those look really good. I want to have uh, some of my bushels allocated that way. that's that's fine. But as Michael indicated, there's downside risk, and that's not something we want to do with all of our bushels. So how what percentage of the crop we're going to allocate to the on hedge strategy versus a hedge strategy versus doing some pre-harvest marketing, right, and filling all of those things in?
0: And just as kind of a little preview, I think of some of the ongoing research that you and Dr. Langemar are working on along with one of your graduate students is, trying to identify that optimal portfolio strategy, yeah. right? So you've got some, some quantitative work going on in the background, not quite ready to, uh, to talk about it yet, but hopefully in a year or so, maybe we'll have some better results that maybe fine tune that strategy just a little bit. Yeah. So, so Michael, let's turn to you. And you've been, uh, you're kind of the man of the hour because everybody's trying to figure out, can we make any money at these prices and at these costs? And uh,
2: what's happening to things like cash rent? I don't know if I have the answers, but we're certainly going to look at some charts and and talk about this issue. Uh, If we move to the first slide here, um, first of all, uh, according to the Purdue Ag Econ uh, report, the the, the latest Purdue cash rent and land value survey, cash rents were up about 5% uh, in 21, and land values were up close to 15%. So land values were triple uh, cash rent. Um, What about cash rents for 22 well, I've got a guesstimate here. I've got a guesstimate of 5%. It could easily be 5 to 10%. Obviously, we won't know those numbers until, until, until the next summer when we do the survey. Um, so that's what I am going to talk about in this slide. I think we can learn a lot about uh, what, what, where cash may be heading in 22 and, and years after that by looking at long-run averages. So what I've done is I've, I've compared the net return to land to cash rent from 2007, start of the ethanol boom, all the way to a 22 projection. And what you can see here is it takes several years of high income from the operator's standpoint to drive those cash rents up rapidly. Uh, in fact, you know, after 7 to, to 10, we had some good returns. Uh, cash rents increased more than 10% in 11, 12, and 13. Are we in a similar situation right now? I don't think so because even though the net return to land was very strong in 2020, a large part of that was government payments, uh, but very strong income in, in 21, uh, good prices with, with lower input costs. The input cost increases hadn't hit uh, the 21 returns, and so very good return in 21. 22 doesn't look near as good. And so, I, and so I, yes, there's upward pressure, uh, but I don't think we're going to see a situation where we're going to see two or three years in a row of double-digit increases in cash rent. Going to the next slide. Uh, Let's look at uh, net farm income, um, you know, per acre. And so this this chart just puts in perspective how good 21 really, really uh, is. Uh, Obviously, this is not finalized. we still got a a little bit of time to go here uh, for for 21. But this is going to be a pretty close way it's going to end up. 21 rivaled some of those earlier years during that 2007 to 2013 period. But the difference here, again, from a cash rent standpoint is 20 was good, Uh, But it wasn't quite as good as some of those other years from 2007 to 2013. And 22 does not look look as good uh, as 20 or 21. I update this slide monthly in the webinars. And Jim and Nathan can attest to the fact that every time I update, this 22 bar comes down a little bit. Why? Input costs keep increasing. And so as those input costs increase, and less prices increase with that, uh, 22 doesn't look quite as good. Does that mean 22 is going to be a train wreck? No. Not necessarily. 22 is just going to be closer to break even uh, than what we saw in, in 20 and 21. So we move to the next slide here. Uh, this is showing some of that cost impact. Uh, we're seeing cost increases in fertilizer, pesticide, and seed. Uh, seed is much more modest than the, 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 the uh, the expected increases in herbicide and herbicide and seed are much much more modest uh, than what we're seeing in fertilizer. This is using current fertilizer prices, and so for example, anhydrous ammonia in this chart is at 14.35. Uh, that's the latest information from the Illinois uh, production report from the USDA. Uh, but fertilizers 80% higher. Fertilizer costs are 80% higher. Uh, on corn uh, compared to last March. And so just a very large increase there. Obviously that's increasing the break even and making the margins much tighter in 22 than what they were in, in 2020 and 2021. And so even though prices are really strong, You look at prices in November, uh, soybeans, uh, November 22 soybeans, and December 22 corn. Those are good prices uh, compared to the averages we've seen since 2007. These break even prices are also really high uh, compared to break even prices uh, since 2007 and really historically.
0: Michael, when I look at that chart, one of the things that jumped out at me when I was looking at these yesterday is the fact that when you look at 2022, that's the only year on there where the fertilizer cost per bushel is higher than the cash rent cost per bushel.
2: Yes, that, that as far as I know, I've been doing, the, I've been doing this for a long time, Jim. I've been, I've been looking at cost of production since 1990. This is really unusual. I don't even remember a year where it was even close. Yeah, uh, to be in the same uh, yet a yet year where it's actually identical or, or slightly higher. Uh, and let me talk a little bit about uh, the, the importance of cash rent, because I'm going to I'm going to talk about flex rent here in a little bit. Uh, year in and year out, if you look at long run averages, cash rent tends to be the highest cost uh, for corn. It averages about 30 percent of total cost, whereas soybeans it's closer to 40 percent because uh, soybeans, you don't have the high nitrogen cost. Uh, and, and, so, and, and, so, uh, and so it's really rare to see fertilizer costs uh, similar. Uh, in this case, 27% uh, of the expected total cost for, for corn in 2022 is fertilizer alone. Yep. If we look at the next chart, uh, this is looking at a, the N rate calculator tool uh, that's based out of Iowa State, but the data is, is collected from uh, agronomists across the Corn Belt. And so this is based on, on, on uh, Purdue agronomy uh, information. And what this shows you is as we get to these hot, really high uh, fertilizer prices, right now we're about 87 cents uh, for anhydrous ammonia. But as we get to 80 cents and a dollar, notice what happens to the optimal N rate. The optimal N rate does come down 20 pounds, 25 pounds, 30 pounds from what we put on when we had 40 cent nitrogen. 40 cent nitrogen, it, uh, it was actually similar to what we had last spring. And so, you know, when you have when you have 40 cent nitrogen, you're going to put you're going to put on uh, that, that 192 pounds. You're going to put on uh, quite a bit of nitrogen uh, as the price gets uh, larger you're probably going to put on less. And so keep this in mind. I encourage you to go to that website for n Calculator and calculate uh, for your part of Indiana or from Illinois, uh, your part of Illinois. And so we've got this for several uh, Corn Belt states because I think this is very important to keep in mind. We don't need that 192 uh, pounds of nitrogen uh, to get close to that 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 100 uh, uh, percent of that yield. Here we're here we're dropping nitrogen quite a bit and only losing two percent of the yield. And 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 you know why are we why are we losing, Why are we willing to give up two percent of the yield? Well, I think it's obvious uh, that cost just accelerates uh, as, as you start as you start putting on that 190 to 200 to 210 uh, pounds of nitrogen. So take a look at that website. Uh, what about break-even prices? Uh, I, I update this chart every month too for our webinars, and these bars also increasing. These red bars are also increasing. Uh, my, my latest estimates looks at even on high productivity soil. This is soil with 215 bushel corn and 65 bushel soybeans. We're looking at a even price for corn that's $5. Uh, I don't remember talking about a $5 breakeven price, but that's where we're at on high productivity. If we look at 182 bushel corn, which is the average productivity. That's that's the trend uh, for Indiana, 182 bushel corn. Obviously, it'd be higher in, in this part of the, the state, but that's the, that's the average for the state. We're looking at break-even prices of 540. As we get to that more marginal ground, not that Indiana has a, a lot of marginal ground, but as we get that lower productivity ground, uh, the break-even approaches 590. And so I think we can use this chart to think about uh, what's probably going to happen to corn acreage uh, across the Corn Belt? I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, corn versus soybeans here in a little bit, but I think we can use this chart here to start thinking about national acreage. The speaker before was indicating that he expected some reduction in corn acreage as we move to further west into that North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, and Kansas. Those states grow a lot of corn uh, and a lot of dryland corn. Even in Kansas, there's there's non-irrigated corn all the way in the western part of kansas and nebraska for that matter Uh, and so we're growing corn in, in places we didn't think about growing corn 20 years ago uh, in those parts in in those parts of the country you're probably going to see some reduction in corn acreage the costs just aren't warranted uh, to grow corn on, on some of those acres and so if, you, if we see some slippage in corn acres that's what's going to happen and that's why I wanted to talk about this because I think this slide shows that uh, as you get in that lower productivity soil soybeans are much more competitive uh, compared to corn as well as other crops like spring wheat uh, in north and South Dakota uh, so moving on to the next slide, this shows that uh, for Indiana uh, shows that that relationship between corn versus soybean profitability. And what this clearly shows to me is it, it's it's somewhat surprising to me is how competitive corn really is this year, despite the fact that we took the break-even price from four dollars to close to five dollars. So despite that. Uh, the very high cost for corn as well as soybeans but 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 more so for corn Uh, corn is still very competitive on that average to above average soil Uh, and and so uh the last last five years or so we've been running maybe five percent more soybeans than corn acres uh in in indiana I think that's going to be much closer to 50-50 uh, based on this analysis this year uh, and doing this for 10 years. Uh, I, I really think a, a corn's going to hang right in there uh, in Indiana and across the Corn Belt uh, and be very competitive with soybeans. And again, surprisingly, because, uh, because the high input costs, uh, uh that, corn's gonna, gonna stay in there. And, and I also think, uh, talking a little bit about what Jim was talking about and the speakers before us, I think there's quite a bit of downside risk with soybeans. And so I think you need to keep that in mind, uh, when you're looking at a chart like this. Not that there isn't for corn, but there's some, there's some factors that could take that, that, that soybean price below, uh, the $12 mark. Uh, you're certainly into the fall, and so so keep some of these things in mind uh, when you're making uh, some of the decisions on some of your marginal acres. I know many of you use the the, the rotation corn, rotation soybeans routinely, and so not going to migrate away from that. Uh, but I, I think we'll see a little less second year soybeans this year. Uh, how about continuous corn? Not in Indiana. Uh, when I look at the I, I look at a similar chart uh, table like this for for continuous corn. It, it just doesn't look uh, competitive with rotation soybeans. That's not uncommon for Indiana. We tend, grow, we tend to grow 50-50 in Indiana. As you move further west into Iowa, for example, uh, they, they typically have a corn to soybean rate uh, acreage ratio of 1.45. If anything, I think that might increase a little bit. Uh, because in Iowa, uh, corn is always more competitive than soybeans, given it, given every, you know, in, in a typical year. And so I think we'll see quite a bit of continuous corn in Iowa, but not necessarily in Indiana. So that's my take uh, in terms of the acreage in Indiana and, and across the Corn Belt and, and nationally. We go on to the next slide. Uh, now I want to talk just a couple minutes about flex rent. I've been getting a lot of questions on flex rent. There's a lot of different flex rent examples out there, so this is just one of them. Uh, And uh, with this particular example, it's flexing on revenue. I always recommend flexing on revenue, both price and yield, rather than just price, just yield. That way, if there's a really high uh, corn yield, very high soybean yield, the landlord perhaps gets a bonus that year. Also, if we see a price spike uh, in corn or soybeans uh, this fall. uh, They would receive a bonus. And so, I, and so I like to flex on both of those. What this one does is it sets the base rent at 90%. There's usually a floor that is flex rent. And then there's it flexes uh, if the gross revenue is above non-land cost plus base rent. That's a pretty high hurdle. Uh, I've seen hurdles for other flex rents that weren't near that high, because you think about that, this is full costing. This is with opportunity cost in there. And so if you own your land, uh, we've got to charge for that. If you own your machinery, we've got to charge for that. And so that's a pretty big hurdle uh, for for, uh, uh, for the revenue to jump over. But there is years where this obviously happens. And again, if there's if it's really good uh, yields next fall or, 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 or very good prices or both, uh, the landlord uh, would receive, would receive uh, an increase in their rent. Um, This is certainly less risky than increasing that rent substantially in 22. Might be too late. You might have already done that. But increasing your rent substantially in 22, then having to negotiate a lower rent in 23. So that's why the flex they're getting a lot of flex rent questions this year and probably will continue because of all the uncertainty related to prices. These flex rent uh, arrangements work really well in that environment. So let's see what happens in this kind of arrangement. Uh, and so this is actually looking at uh, share minus fixed. And so I've, I've thrown share lease in here. And so zero would be same return for both of those. Obviously, when you see good yields, good prices, share rent does well. So, Michael, your share rent is a 50-50? 50-50 in this case. Though a one-third, two-thirds would be very similar one-third, two-thirds, where, where the landlord pays no, uh, no cost. That would be very similar to this graph. And so 7 to 13, share rent was better than fixed. Uh, the last two or three years, share rent was better than fixed. Uh, let's go ahead one slide, and we'll see the flex rent. The flex rent has some of the same features as a share rent. That's what makes it attractive to the landlord uh, and attractive to the operator because you're reducing that base rent by 10%. Uh, and so there's a lot of years where the base rent is lower than the market rent, uh, but it does give you that it does give you that upside potential from a landlord perspective in the really good years. And so you see, from seven to thirteen, uh, there was some there was higher returns for the flex rent than there was for the for the cash rent, very similar to the to the share rent. But notice a big difference in that, gra- that graph between the flexible rent and the share rent. the the, the, the share rent doesn't really have a bottom. When you're sharing one-third, two-thirds, or 50-50, there's no bottom. Whereas the flex rent, the bottom is the base rent. And so that rent can only go to 90% of the market. It can't go any lower than that, the way they've set this up. And so I'd like to talk about downside risk. Jim and Nathan know that, because I'm kind of a downside risk person. I'm very risk averse, and so I love that subject. Uh, The flex rent has a, a lot less downside risk. Uh, compared to the crop share. And so I think it's a very attractive option. Uh, you know, It's kind of in between that, that share rent and that, and that cash rent. But if the landlord wants some upside potential, I think the flex rent fits in quite nicely uh, with that. Uh, I've got one more slide here looking at 22. Uh, what about 22? Well, 20 and 21 were really good years for flex rent because we had, uh, we had strong prices and strong revenues. 22, not so much. And so if you're thinking 22, I'm going to start a flex rent, I'm going to hit a home run, you might. Uh, but you might also hit a single or hit a, a little grounder to the pitcher, uh, if you will. I like baseball, so I use the baseball analogies. And so using current projections, uh, 520 corn and $12 soybeans, uh, trend yields, uh, and a fixed cash rent of $275. This is average productivity in Indiana, in West Central Indiana. Under the flex rent, we'd have a small bonus, but remember, we're only paying 90% of the base, and so if that bonus is small, we might not get up to the market cash rent, and in fact, we don't. Uh, the flex rent's projected to be about $30 per acre lower than the market cash rent. And you can say, well, why would I want to do this? Well, there is some upside potential for both corn and soybeans, and so it doesn't mean the flex rent necessarily going to be bad. It's just that if you look at the averages right now, uh, it's not necessarily going to be better. I did calculate the prices needed for flex rent to equal cash rent. They're not outside the realm of possibility by any means, Uh, 554 corn uh, and 1278 soybeans. And so uh, so I just wanted to show you kind of uh, some historical analysis related to the flex rent. Uh, It does have its place, I think, uh, in the Corn Belt in particular, uh, and also uh, show you some projections for 22. So with that, I think that kind of wraps things up for us. We've got our Top Farmer
0: Conference coming up here in early January. If you haven't participated in the Top Farmer Conference, we've been doing that at Purdue for over 50 years. The last year and this year, it's been virtual, so it's on Zoom, uh, so you can access it from anywhere. Um, I've got some cards here with some details on the agenda, uh, but I'd encourage you to tap into that. It's a great conference. Uh, We're going to do it on Zoom, so it'll be a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the afternoon with a lunch break. And then as Michael's indicated, and Nathan, I think, May's indicated as well, we do these webinars every month that you can tap into what's taking place with respect to the outlook. And we always do them typically the day after the USDA releases its World egg Supply Demand estimates. So it's a good way to kind of get the update on what USDA has got to say, as well as our interpretation of it. That wraps up our discussion today. Join us for our next Outlook webinar on January 13th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can register for the webinar at purdue.edu commercialag I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And so on behalf of Michael Langmar and Nathan Thompson and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for listening.